Thank you, Michael. Grateful for that worship and grateful for all the work the tech team has done here in, in getting things ready for Christmas. And then Michael putting the frosting on the cake with all that wonderful worship music related to Christmas. I know Christmas is going to feel completely different this year. I have no doubt of that. But I'm sure that we would acknowledge the fact that the first Christmas didn't feel familiar for Mary and Joseph and Jesus as an infant baby. There was nothing that preceded it. So the first Christmas for them was not familiar either. This particular Christmas will probably not be very familiar in the sense that it will have a different feel. But it doesn't mean that it has to be any less glorifying to God. So I look forward to these weeks ahead of you and myself getting ready for Christmas, getting ready to celebrate and being able to celebrate well what God has done for us. I'm going to encourage you right now to take out your Bible and go to the book of Matthew, if you would, Matthew 21. We're going to dig into that in just a minute. Um, I'll give you a heads up in advance. Next weekend, we're going to take communion together. Normally, we take that together on the first of the month, but we didn't notify everyone in advance. So next weekend, I'm going to give you one week notice. If you'll get your elements together this week, we'll do that together virtually. We'll be able to do communion together next weekend and celebrate together as a church. Uh, but in the meantime, you've got some advance notice on that, and I just want to remind you that you can do your giving electronically, you can do your giving virtually, just like we can do church virtually. You can give electronically just by going to the church website and participating, helping us through this year-end time. We would greatly appreciate that. Thanks for keeping that in mind as you do your spending this year and as you do your giving. So if you have your Bible and you're in Matthew 21, you see this amazing declarative, declarative statement by Jesus. And I want to put up on the screen for you this one that comes from Matthew 28 that kind of sets a framework for everything we're going to look at in Matthew 21. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 28, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's a massive statement, and that statement can only be true of one individual. If you grew up in church, you, you know who sang that. I just mentioned it. It's Jesus saying that. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. His authority over every situation that you face, whether or not you're going through a, a failed relationship right now or whether or not you have a poor health diagnosis, whether or not your job is in jeopardy or things economically are not going well for you, whether or not you're living alone or you have multiple people in your home. He has authority over every one of those situations. He says all authority, not some, but all authority. And this is the very issue you're going to find in Matthew 21 that the leaders of Israel want to challenge him on. This word, authority, we're going to examine it in, in length this morning. What was Jesus saying when he meant that? It's a biblical principle that all authority flows from and is derived from God. In other words, it's God who lifts up and it's God who puts down. He's the source according to his purpose. He's the one who lifts up and he's the one who puts down according to the purposes of what he wants to accomplish. And admittedly, those purposes at times are a mystery to us. Like, why did he ever give authority to Nero? Why was authority given to that one? And why was he in power? Or Stalin or Idi Amin? I'm sure you have your list. 
we all wonder why certain individuals are put in authority and why others are not. Jesus says all authority has been given to him. And you'll see today in today's parables, the, the leader of Israel, the leadership of that nation are going to challenge the authority of Jesus. Just prior to these particular verses, he's overturned the money changers' tables. He's chased people out of the temple for doing ungodly things in the temple courtyard. And that sets up Matthew 21, where we're going to be this morning. So let me pray with you first before we step into it. Invite God to be our teacher, and let's do that together. Would you join me in that church? Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask right now that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would teach us. As you prepare our hearts for the weeks ahead, we don't know what they hold, but you do. And, and we don't know exactly what tomorrow holds, but you do. We don't even know what this afternoon holds. So we come before you saying, teach us now, Father. Teach us that we would use these principles that we're about to learn, that we would use them to impact the lives of others, that it would impact our own lives. As we speak into other people's lives, that you would use this information through us. Speak now through your word, Father. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 23 of Matthew 21 starts out this way. And when he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? So it's Wednesday morning. It's only a couple days until the crucifixion. And Jesus stands in the courtyard and on this Wednesday that he stands in the courtyard teaching individuals, 24 hours earlier, he had flipped over the money changers' temple, tables in the temple. He had chased them out. They were doing things that God said shouldn't be done within his complex, within his house. It's an enormous complex. There's a very large courtyard. It's called the Courtyard of the Gentiles, where Gentiles and Jews mixed together. It was a natural place for teaching to take place, and that's where we find Jesus. And listeners can easily hear his voice within the temple courtyard. His voice bounces off the arches and off the pillars and off the giant, elaborate stone walls. They listen to him as he speaks of the things of God. And, and we're told that those who approach him are the elders. We see specifically in verse 23, the chief priest and the elders. That may include Caiaphas, that may include Annas. Those are the two who are serving concurrently as high priest. But more likely, it's the previous high priest and, and the elders who have joined them. And in any event, they're those who are committed to upholding the law of God. They want to enforce it legally. And they're challenging Jesus on legal grounds. Now, just in case you're new to church and maybe you're not familiar with these terms, the elders are members of what's known as the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is the Supreme Court of Israel. We have nine members of a Supreme Court here in the United States. They had 70, 70 members of the Supreme Court. And it was made up of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, all names that they gave to individuals who carried legal responsibility. And so this court, the Sanhedrin, sent out apparently a, a representation. This is a delegation of the Supreme Court. And because of the seriousness of the confrontation, at a minimum, the captain of the temple, who was the second in command, would have to be present there. 
And as they interrupt, Jesus is walking about in the courtyard. We see that in Mark. Mark captured that in chapter 11, verse 27. He says this, as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. So we have Jesus walking and teaching at the same time. He has a captivated audience. And in Luke 19, we see this detail. He was teaching daily in the temple, verse 48, and all the people were hanging on to every word that he said. So you can be sure that whatever his theme is, at the core of it is the kingdom of God. That's what he speaks about all the time. He speaks of the gospel message that he came to seek and save those who were lost. So at the core of it is going to be the kingdom, him speaking of the things of the kingdom of God. That would be the very center of his teaching. And as he teaches, this ensemble of accusers, they they approach him and they want him to explain, by what authority are you assuming this role? These things, they specifically say in verse 23. If you have your Bible open, you might want to circle that, that phrase, these things in your Bible, verse 23. Although Matthew doesn't specify specifically what things, it's likely everything that Jesus has been teaching and doing, especially in the previous 48 hours. Here's a couple things that he's been doing. Just back up a couple verses with me. Matthew 21, 14. Look at this. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did... And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Well, that was only one day earlier. That's just 24 hours earlier. But more specifically, they appear to be focused on his cleansing of the temple, which also happened 24 hours earlier, just the day before. 24 hours earlier, Jesus is physically flipping over tables casting out the money changers, saying, you've made my house into a den of thieves. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. Look with me on the screen, and you see this reflected in Matthew 21, 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. And in doing that, he clearly and forcefully makes a public declaration, a demonstration of his authority. And at the same time, he's shattering the establishment right in front of the eyes of the public who are watching. And the nation's leaders are powerless to stop him in the moment. We might even use the word flabbergasted. Can't believe he's doing what he's doing because it happens so decisively and so quickly. But now, 24 hours later, they've recovered from the shockwave of Jesus' behavior. And they're willing to come to him and confront him and say, by what authority did you do this? Who gives you the right to act in this way? And so we find this word exousia being used. If you've downloaded your notes this morning and you, or you see this on the screen, you see this as one of the few Greek words I'm going to give you this morning. They've recovered from the shock, and now they're on the offense, and they're saying, by what exousia do you carry out these actions? You see the word. You see it on the screen there in front of you. It has a lot of synonyms that go along with it. Mastery and competency and capacity. But more specifically, these last components of it, jurisdiction, power, right, strength, 
The word excusia or, or authority is a very strong word in the Bible. And it denotes power and it denotes privilege. And, and to be very clear, a person with authority exercises authority over other individuals. It's very implicit within the word. They don't have authority over leaves or over cats. They have authority over other people, over the lives of others. And we understand within a society, we can't operate without individuals in positions of authority. We have to have them in place. The alternative is chaos. So within family units, parents have authority. And within governments, individuals have authority. Within the school classroom, teachers have authority. We understand that. We get that. And that's kind of the same way that they're using this thought here. As you can imagine, granting exousia, granting authority, especially in the Bible, is taken extremely seriously. In the Old Testament, authority was always linked with this thought of shmika, the, the Hebrew word shmika. It, it starts out just like it sounds, S-H-E. Shemika was something that was granted to individuals who were rabbis, the, the rabbis who taught and led the people. To be a rabbi meant that you had to be ordained. You had to be commanded by a greater rabbi, someone who commended you to the governing body to say, this one qualifies. So one who was greatly respected, a greater rabbi, would commend another rabbi to become a rabbi. But first, under that greater rabbi, you had to study as a candidate. You had to, if you will, spiritually apprentice under that one. Just as we find in the New Testament, Paul apprenticed under the house of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the greater rabbi over Paul, who was the lesser. And Paul studied under him. But eventually, Paul was commended to become part of the Sanhedrin, to become part of the leadership of Israel. In that same way, in the first century, we find that thought carried over here. In order to centralize rabbinical authority, what the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court did, is they brought all responsibility for ordination underneath their authority. In other words, no one became a rabbi without their approval. And at an ordination ceremony, that individual was declared to be a rabbi, to be an elder, to be a judge within the land of Israel. They were given exousia. They were given authority to teach and to instruct and to guide the people and to make decisions and to render verdicts. And once they were ordained, they were recognized as credentialed among the people. They had exousia the ability to carry out their actions. Now, for their part, the chief priests and the elders in the first century, they were the guardians of the spiritual life of the nation. And they're asking the right question. They had the responsibility to ask this question of Jesus, not in the way that they're asking it, but they have the responsibility. And this issue of Jesus' authority is what they question. It's what they fear because it threatens their own authority. Now, just pause for a moment. We would be remiss as a group of people studying God's word. We would be remiss if we didn't admit to being amazed at the ignorance represented here. Now, here's why. Jesus has given them years of evidence. You remember how John closed his book? 
John closed his book at the very end by saying, I suppose that if all the things that Jesus had done were written down, all the books in all the world would not be able to contain them. In other words, Jesus gave lots of evidence. Here he is at the very end of his life. It's the Wednesday before the crucifixion. He's given years of evidence to the people so that they can see exactly who he is. These individuals who are the leaders of Israel are eyewitnesses to his power, eyewitnesses to his authority. He's been feeding the thousands. He's been calming the sea, walking on water, turning water into wine, casting out demons, giving eyesight to the blind, even raising the dead, yet they will not face the facts. So from the view of the leadership, the view of the elders of Israel, the high priest, when it came to Jesus' authority, they knew they had not given it to him. Jesus had had no ordination ceremony. He'd had no training that they know of. He had no credentials given to him. They knew that they had not bestowed on him any authority. And so they're coming and challenging him saying, who gave it to you? You have no recognition. How dare you presume upon yourself to take the role of removing the money changers from the temple? Who gave you this authority? And that's why they're coming and asking. Uh, in regard to Jesus' power, they never questioned that he had power. They've seen it with their own eyes. They know it. That's unquestionable. No one ever healed or cast out demons or raised people or spoke as Jesus spoke. And he decisively demonstrated authority over creation and authority over disease and authority over malformation and authority to ex execute judgment and authority over the fallen angels and authority to grant life to those who would become the sons of God, and authority to lay down his own life, and authority to raise it up again. All of this was validating. Jesus had both power and authority, but power refers to ability. Authority refers to the right to exercise it. None has greater power or authority than Jesus. And because he already is all power and is all authority, he doesn't seek human authorization or any human credentials. But because he didn't seek man's approval and he didn't need man's approval, he incurs the wrath of Israel's leadership. They didn't grant him authority and they presume it's their right to grant him authority. And because he doesn't seek their approval, they're appalled that he will not consult them. Now, just as a side note, in the first century, creativity or, or operating outside the bounds of accepted behavior, we'll say originality, originality was not a value. It wasn't appreciated by people. So in the rabbinical schools, if, if you were to take some type of an action as a, a person who was um, apprenticing, you always had to cite another rabbi. You, you had to cite a rabbi who was greater than you. Rabbi so-and-so says, and then they would cite some historical statement. Originality was frowned upon. You always cited a greater rabbi. But Jesus never did that. Jesus never cited anyone else. He only quoted himself. 
Jesus simply appears on the scene. He taught and he acted and he never cited other rabbis. And so the authorities saw this as an insult to them. So let's bear down on this phrase. I know it's taken us a few minutes to get here, but just go with me to verse 23 so that we can move ahead. Look one more time with me. By what exousia are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And here's what their question implies. No one can just assume authority without their approval. There has to be some superior entity who granted it to you. Now, here's the basic principle moving forward as we work through this passage. You and I, just like in the first century, you and I today in 2020, we cannot learn new truth if we disobey the truth that God has already shown us. We cannot learn new truth if we're in the midst of disobeying the truth that God has already revealed. That plays out within this passage. Verse 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, the leadership of Israel, they think that they're acting from a position of strength. They're thinking Jesus has to cite some greater position of authority, some greater source who's given it to him. And since they represent the temple authority, the Sanhedrin, and they know they haven't given it to him, it certainly can't be any source that they acknowledge that's given him authority. So in their mind, here's what they're thinking. Any human source that he would quote or that he would cite, we don't recognize it. And if he cites heaven as his source, well, then we have him. We have him on blasphemy charges, as though he's saying God chose him and set him apart. So Jesus puts the pause button, depressed, and asks them to hold that thought while I ask you a question, and here's his question, Matthew 21, 25. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? I'll tell you, church, as I read through these passages, as I worked through these parables over the last year, and, and this week was no exception to it, I'm, I'm continually astounded how much the wisdom of God surpasses the intellect of man. And it absolutely, it leaves me mortified, and I expect it probably does for you as well. I'm personally ashamed that we have fellow humans who think that they can contend with God. You'll see what I mean as we work through this. An example is this. Jesus drops this bomb by saying in verse 25, uh, by the way, the baptism of John, where did that come from? Now, Jesus' response appears to completely stand in lonely isolation as though it's completely separated from their line of thought, as almost like it's disconnected from what they've just been talking about. Yet I promise you, it is unquestionably connected. And Jesus views this issue as enormously significant. So he simply asks, the baptism of John, where did it come from? And if they're honest in their response, they will have the answer to their question regarding authority. 
If they were honest in replying to what Jesus is saying, they'll have an answer to their question. But make no mistake, their issue, their concern is not for truth. The focus that they have is on trying to trap Jesus. But in doing so, they end up trapping themselves. If you're new to church, I want you to understand the flow of this. John the baptizer, John, that they're referring to in this passage, not the author of the book of John, it's a different John. John the Baptist, John the baptizer, was an individual who appeared on the scene in in the line of the old prophets of Israel. He was actually the last of the prophets of the Old Testament. And he came to prepare the way for Jesus to be the messenger who would announce, prepare the way of the Lord. Make the hills low, make the valleys high, clear the rocks out of the path, the king is coming. And he came to baptize and to cause people to repent to get their lives in order because the Messiah was coming. Well, he was preparing the way for the Messiah and and the content of his work was absolutely so compelling it had an enormous impact upon the people of Israel. Here's what Jesus is doing. In pointing them back to John, Jesus is not trying to avoid the issue. He's not disconnecting the thought and going down a rabbit trail. Had the leaders of Israel accepted and received John's ministry, they would have received Jesus. Instead, they allowed Rome, they allowed Herod to arrest John and to kill him. And if they will not accept John's authority, they will not accept the greater authority of Jesus. Now, for the part of the chief priests and the elders, they they realize, they quickly realize, they have just stepped in it. Jesus has just placed them on a crushing path of intellectual defense. They've got to make a defense now for what they're thinking. You might remember this verse that Scripture says that before a word is ever on our lips, God knows what we're about to say. God clearly knew what they were about to say. Glad God understood where they were going. He understood the direction, the line of questioning that was taking place here. It's always astounding to me how mankind will go out of their way to avoid the issue of truth when it's right in front of them. Watch what happens in verse 25, part B. And they discussed it. They're discussing Jesus' question. And they discussed it among themselves, saying... If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? Verse 26, but if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And just catch the setting here, right? We're in the temple courtyard. The people are gathered around. They can hear Jesus' voice echoing off the walls, the pillars very cleanly and clearly. And this group, this group of accusers approaches Jesus, interrupts him in the middle of his teaching and challenge him on authority. And now they say, we're not sure we know the answer. Huddle up, everybody huddle up. And they get into a group and they speak among themselves because they don't want anybody else hearing them they don't want to hear the, the di- they don't want the dialogue that's being communicated to be heard by people who are in the crowd. And so they begin talking among themselves according to what Matthew has written here. And if they say from heaven, they know they've lost their case, even though they know it's true. 
And, and had they believed John, they'd not be holding this inquisition of Jesus. They'd become followers of Jesus if they actually believed what John said. And that's unthinkable. See, church, it's not that they simply reject John. They've rejected the very clear witness that John brought. What did John have to say? John said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And if you look at the, the books where John's history is written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record that he actually called Jesus the Son of God. So if they receive that and believe that, they'd have to become followers of Jesus. To accept John as a true prophet results in having to believe his claims, specifically about Jesus, and that they absolutely will not do. So the alternative is to say, well, it's, it's for men. But the consequences for that would be, well, terrible because to claim John's authority was based in man would be to incite a riot. They can't say that we've given him the exousia. We, they can't say we've granted him the credentials because the population considered John a prophet. Did you catch that? The population of the nation believed that John was sent from God. And so they're afraid of the consequences of rejecting John, so they choose lame stupidity. Uh, I don't know. Now, that excuse might work for you in geometry class when your math professor asks you a question. It might work for you in history class. It doesn't work with Jesus, especially when God knows that they know the answer. We don't know. We can't say. It's not that they are ignorant of the facts. They're not stupid. They're very smart individuals. Here's the issue. They're defiant. And yet, if they persist in rejecting the light, they're going to find that God will turn off the light. Go with me to the next verse, verse 27, part B. And he said to them, Neither will I get, tell you by what authority I do these things. See, if Jesus gives them the answer, if he gives them the response they want, they're going to attempt to use it against him, as they've done so many times in the past. They're not interested in the truth. Their sole purpose is to bait Jesus. Now, I want you to catch, really process what's going on here. The leadership of a nation... The guardians of truth are politically trapped because they refuse the truth. Jesus says, I know the answer, but I'm not going to give you the answer until you stop refusing to be honest. So let's just summarize what we've seen so far so we can get into this parable that Jesus is presenting. It's a very short parable. Just process this thought. Did John come with the official authority of man or did he come with the authority of God? Was he the voice of one crying in the wilderness? Prepare the way of the Lord. Did he get that from man? Did man give him the credentials to do that? Or did he come from God as a prophet? Jesus has asked an absolutely brilliant question here. 
And in asking this question, he's impaling his accusers on the point of an extremely painful dilemma. If they admit John's authority is from God, why did they not believe John? And if they say it's from man, well, the Passover crowd is in town, and it's politically dangerous for them to say that because John is of the caliber of Elijah, and they know perfectly well that John came from God but will never admit it. And by their, well, we don't know. Once again, what we're seeing, church, is an intellectual dissent simply becoming a cover for disobedience. An intellectual dissent becoming a cover for disobedience of God. Jesus has just unmasked them, and he's exposed their hypocrisy. And the lack of integrity has blown up in their face. But I promise you, this is more than just a momentary pause of embarrassment. There's far more going on here. This is not just about Jesus embarrassing them publicly. That's not his goal here. He's emphasizing another dimension in the authority issue. Let's see what that is. So Jesus delivers this very short parable to make his point very understandable. And I promise you when he does this, he's doing this out of mercy. Not just mercy for the people listening to him, not just mercy from God towards the elders, the Pharisees, and the scribes. This is mercy towards you as well. Verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. This is verse 28, Matthew 21. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. So Jesus is just saying, stop a minute. Just put on your thinking caps. Think this through with me. Here's the setting. You got a couple of young adults. Whether they're late teens or early 20s, we don't know, but these couple sons still live at home. They appear to be without any regular jobs, so we're picturing them, we'll say, at leisure. In, in 2020, they might be video gaming. They've got the recliners tipped back, and dad walks into the room, and the father approaches them with an assignment. He's got some chores for them, but he approaches them separately, according to the story that Jesus is telling. So he's come to the first son, and he says, I want you to go to the vineyard today. Watch the son's response, verse 29. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. If you raise teens in our generation, you're immediately tracking with this story. But in the first century, this is really uncharacteristic behavior. A son who would disobey his dad and would actually defiantly say to his face, I will not go. That's not normal, and that would absolutely tip the elders and the Pharisees back in their seats. Like, what? What kind of a son is that that would say that to his father? It's an unqualified refusal, but that's only the first part. That's not the whole story. Jesus says he changes his mind, and this phrase, changes his mind, is, is where we get the word repent from. It's used in the sense of repent, because it says he not only changed his mind, if you follow the verse out, it actually says he changed his mind and went. Meaning it wasn't just a thought, it wasn't just a verbal explanation. He actually had action to follow it up. 
So first he said no, and then he said yes, but the yes was followed by action. That's a very important component of repent. But verse 30 says, and he went to the other son, notice, and said the same, the exact same invitation. And he answered, verse 30, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Now, if you've identified with the story so far in verse 29, now you're really seeing your world. You got somebody in their teenage years or early 20s who are saying one thing and doing completely the opposite. Yeah, I'll do that, but has no intention of doing that whatsoever. Did you notice the Father's directive is completely the same? It's the exact same invitation. But while the command is the same, the response is very different. What explains that? But Jesus is illustrating two vastly different responses to the gospel. They're contrasting each other. They're a juxtaposition. Two individuals responding to the gospel message completely different. You notice the second son is completely agreeable. Yes, sir, I will, sir, but he's a liar. He doesn't mean what he said. This is all lip service. This is someone who attends a church service and says, yeah, I'm in for that. But there's nothing in their life that represents what they've just said they committed to. The actions don't match what he's verbally said. So his fake politeness is just a cover. The implication is he never intended to go. And so he's lying to his father to give the impression of obedience, to make it appear to those who are listening to him as though he really intends to do what he says he's going to do. But he's a liar. There's no intent whatsoever, so his false promise only adds to his guilt. Let's keep going. Verse 31. This is the end of the parable, by the way. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, this is the listeners who are with Jesus in the courtyard, they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Mm. Can you imagine, church, the dead silence in the courtyard at that time? You want to talk about a pin drop moment where you could hear a pin drop? He has the religious leaders of the nation in front of him who are all credentialed by the leading rabbis of history. And the one with all authority has just said to them, prostitutes get into heaven before you do. It's no wonder why they had the reactions to Jesus they did. Truly, I say to you, that's the way he starts it, and it opens up this very serious declaration. This is like God saying, pay attention, listen to me, hear me on this. Now, in context, the elders and the chief priests, they outwardly they claim to obey God. 
They claim verbally that they follow God with their lives, but their life actions deny the true relationship. Yeah, they may wear the robes and they may have the credentials. They claim they long for a Messiah to rescue them. But when he arrives and they hear his demands, they will not have him. So Jesus unleashes on them the most scathing, the most excruciating declaration. And it's excruciating for them to hear. Tax collectors, prostitutes, go into the kingdom of God before you. And I promise you, no rebuke could slice them deeper or infuriate them more than to hear themselves contrasted to prostitutes and tax collectors. Nothing would make their hair on the back of their neck stand up. To them, tax collectors and prostitutes are the scum of the earth. Oh, it's true. Prostitutes, tax collectors in the first century, these are individuals who chose to disobey God. But among those individuals, of those who chose to follow Jesus, they've repented. They're the son in the story who first said to the father, no, I'm not going to the vineyard. But later, went. No, I'm not going to do what you asked me to do, but later considered the consequences of their decision and repented their actions revealed that they went the opposite direction. They repent. So prostitutes and tax collectors were the rejects of society. Their professions became synonymous with wicked people, capital W. Their life choices cut them off from all fellowship with the people of Israel. They couldn't even go to the temple to worship God. Showing up at the temple was out of the question. They are not welcome there. But catch this. The sheer volume, the sheer number of those individuals who abandoned their previous lifestyle in order to follow Jesus, it demonstrates to you and I reading this story today that deep down they're just desperate for a genuine life change. They want a new beginning. They want to begin again. They just need someone to show them the way, not to shun them, but to teach them. And this is Jesus' point to the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders. Jesus is saying to the elite, to the elite of the elite, these people that you look down on, they're in the kingdom of God before you. Do you notice he intentionally used the word, they go into the kingdom of God before you. Go in this sense means progress. Progress this way. They decidedly left their immoral life in exchange for Jesus. And the result is they get the kingdom of God. They intentionally progress instead of staying where they were and faking people out by behaving in certain ways, they actually had action that backed it up. What this means for us as we read this story is that these individuals, they demonstrate that there can be change. 
There can be legitimate change in their life. It means the outcast sinner responds to the message much more readily than those who appear to already have their life together. Their very neat and very tidy behavior, thank you very much, is sewn up in such a way you can put a ribbon on it. To those individuals, Jesus is saying, no, you're not fooling anybody. You're certainly not fooling me. Tax collectors and prostitutes, he's saying, are nearer the kingdom than the chief priests of Israel. And it's not because they're more acceptable to God. Hear this. If you hear nothing else, hear this. You don't know Jesus yet? Hear this. It's not because they're more acceptable to God. It's because they're more ready to acknowledge they need God. They need God's grace. So Jesus says in no uncertain terms, these verbal claims to religion, these who make an expression that they claim to belong to God, that's no guarantee into the entrance of heaven. But on the opposite side, he's saying, but even gross sin, when it's repented of, even gross sin, when you walk away from it, will not keep a person out of heaven, regardless of what you've done in your past. That's not going to keep you out. Now, clearly, the very first best response always to God is, I will do your will and actually do God's will, not my will. That's always the first best response. But in the context of this story, in the case of the two responses listed here, Jesus is saying it's infinitely better to be the one who at first refuses him, to be the rebel, if you will, to be the one who at first refuses him, but then stops to contemplate that refusal. What are the consequences of that? Recognize the error, repents, and actually do it, rather than be the hypocrite who says, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm in. I got this. I'm, I've got this down. My life's all together. In context, what Jesus is talking about when he says God's will, doing God's will, is to receive Jesus as both Savior and Lord to receive Jesus as your Savior and actually making him Lord of your life. So Jesus brings it to a close here. Here's the end, verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, underline that church, believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The link that you've seen here to the life of John is at first surprising. It actually seems extraordinary. But the leadership has questions about Jesus' authority. And the reason they have questions about his authority is because they have never actually faced up to the challenge of John, who Jesus is, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. Jesus says, John came in the way of righteousness. Do you see that in that verse 32? Meaning this, not only did his work stem from God, but he's a godly man. And so in Matthew eleven eleven, you actually see, you see this on the screen. Jesus said, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. John lived a righteous life. Among those born of women, that's all of humanity. Among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. Jesus declares that himself. 
But you did not, you, Israel, you leadership, you unbelievers, you did not believe him. I want you to follow the flow of this. Watch the contrast Jesus just set up. Matthew 21, 32. But the tax collectors, the women of the night, the prostitutes believed him. This means that John baptized prostitutes because they repented. John baptized tax collectors because they were open to the gospel. They came to the River Jordan. They saw John. They heard the message. They believed. John says, get your act together. Repent for the Messiah is coming. And they believed, and Jesus is calling them out on it. And he says, even when you saw that, this is the most serious accusation that he's making. Even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds. See, the, the belief of John's message is so evident. It's evidenced in the repentance of these individuals. It produced repentance, in other words. Consequently, what John was looking for is the fruit of repentance. We're talking about life transformation here. We're talking about people who changed their life. Jesus says, you did not believe even when you saw prostitutes stop selling their bodies. And that's what they used for their source of income. And they stopped. And you saw life change. And you wouldn't believe the message. So you've got to follow this church to its logical conclusion. Hear this. This applies to you. You're wondering where this is all going. This is coming home to you this morning. Their lives, and I'm talking about the prostitutes and I'm talking about the tax collectors, their lives are a witness. A witness that the gospel is real. See, that's how powerful your walk with Christ is. Your walk with Jesus this Christmas season, this week in front of you, even this afternoon, your walk is so powerful with Christ that it stands as a witness to the life change that Jesus brought about in you. That others would see it, and Jesus is calling it out himself. Yet, in this case, all the leaders and all the other unbelievers refused to be convinced by the genuine transformation they saw right in front of their eyes. So Jesus gives them this enormous warning. It's hugely dangerous. You've been exposed to the light, he's saying to them. You've had the great light of the message of the Son of God, yet you're defiantly refusing what's right in front of you. Do you remember just incidentally when John was on the River Jordan? He was standing on, on the banks of the river and he saw the Pharisees and the scribes show up. And he called them out and he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he went on to say, if you're here for legitimate reasons, show fruit. Bring forth the fruit of repentance. In other words, the actions. The actions that back up what you actually are saying. Let's summarize, just to bring this to an ending of what we've seen here this morning. Bring it to a conclusion. First, here's what we're reminded of, church. First, this should come screaming out at you. First, we're reminded that our God is long-suffering. 
By that I mean patient. And you're wondering where I'm getting that from. You see it in his tolerance of the refusal of that first son. No, I'm not going to the vineyard. No, I'm not going to stop my life. No, I'm not going to stop doing all the things. I want to go to the parties. No, I'm not going to do that for Jesus. No. But our God is patient. And he gave that first son time. Afterwards, he changed his mind and went. How many of us could identify with that rebel first son this morning? How many of us could say, yeah, that, I see myself there. And here's the second component, like, like the father commanding his sons, God commands all people to carry out his will. There's an expectation. He came with the same invitation to both sons. That we choose not to, it doesn't excuse us. Jesus is just calling out the reality that God invites everybody. Here's the third one. Like the son who lied and disobeyed, some people in your life will make a verbal commitment. Some will say, yeah, I'm all in. But if there's no real fruit, if there's no life change, if there's no action, God calls that out as false. Here's the fourth one. Like the son who ultimately obeyed, some do rebel. In the beginning, some refuse, but later submit and are accepted of the Father and enter into the kingdom. Jesus says that group of prostitutes and tax collectors, they're the ones inheriting the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're doing his will. They repent and turn from their life. I want you to hear this this morning as we wrap this up, especially for our friends who might be new to church. You might be this morning joining us from Montana or Texas or Chicago. Maybe you're just down the street and you're watching on your phone in a parking lot. Perhaps you're at work or you're at home and you're in the privacy or you're with lots of people. I want you to hear this no matter what the condition, no matter the circumstance, no matter where you're at. God's vineyard is still open. The door to the vineyard, the gate to the vineyard has not closed. The same call that he extended to the two sons is still extended to you. Don't think that you're too far down the trail to accept the invitation to go to the vineyard and join the others. God's invitation stands right now. Jesus hasn't returned yet. The second coming hasn't taken place. You can still respond to this. And I want you to know this. Be sure that if you respond to the voice of the Father's call this morning, your past sins will be remembered no more. He wipes out your sins as far as the east is from the west. You only have to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe. I want you to take away my sins. And the previous rebellion of your life will be wiped away. God says, I remember it no more. You can still hear the voice of the one crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. You can still respond to that. And please, I'm pleading with you, don't say tomorrow I will do that. None of us knows what tomorrow holds. You and I have no idea 
We don't know what a week from now holds. We don't know what this afternoon holds. Don't put it off. God calls you to respond today. I close with what I consider to be a really beautiful quote, and it comes from Charles Simeon from 1832. Many of you know that Charles is one of my favorite authors. And I love the way that they write, first of all, in the time of the early 1800s. It's just expressive. But also that they were not distracted by electronic media. They had a lot of time to contemplate. So hear this because it's a very biblical statement, and I want you to see this. You watch this along on the screen. The most daring rebel, if he truly repent, shall be accepted of God. This is a most delightful and encouraging truth. It is ascertained beyond a doubt from the parable before us. It has been exemplified in numberless and authentic instances and shall be realized at this hour to those, at this hour, to those who truly desire it. However open, heinous, or deliberate our offenses have been, they shall be forgiven. Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that that is a truth of your word. I join together in prayer right now with many across the landscape of the United States and some who are watching internationally. God, we come before you recognizing that you have put the ultimate blessing on us. You have granted us forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But we also are joined together by individuals who don't yet know you and haven't received that forgiveness. They haven't asked for it. Father, I pray that you would move in their heart right now, that they would receive what Jesus is offering, that we can have forgiveness of our sin and we can enter into eternal life with you. We can become the inheritors of the kingdom, just like the prostitutes and the tax collectors. So God, I pray that you would be at work right now, even though people are not in the auditorium, you are present in the house that they are in or in the car that they are in or in the job site where they're at right now. God, you are there. Move with the power of your Holy Spirit among them and knit us together in the bond of love. Join us, Father. Join us in the love. Bond us that way. Let your Holy Spirit be present. Together, Father, wherever we're at right now, we declare, we lift up praise, glory, and honor to your name in the same way that we just sang the songs that Michael led us in, God, in the same way we see it in your word this morning. We have reason to praise you for what Jesus did to redeem us from our sin. We praise you in his name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.